Becky and I are still so appreciative of the trip that to Israel that the church gave to us and we enjoyed last month. Uh, it's not the only time that we've been given something uh, like that. I remember several years ago, I don't remember how long it was, the kids were pretty small, and there was a, an older married couple that had approached us that was, had visited here on a Sunday and uh, came up to me after a service and said, listen, says, uh, we have a, a timeshare in Williamsburg, Virginia, and you know we're not going to be able to, to take our slot this year because of some obligations, and we've tried to you know, offer it to family members, and none of them can take it, and just wondered if you, know, you and your family would like that. And, you know, I'd like to tell you that I said, let me pray about it and everything, but <laughs> it's one of those things where you thought, well, this, this is the Lord here, and we, we thanked them profusely and, and, and enjoyed a, a very nice uh, partial week there. And, and uh, when we arrived on the place, it was accommodations that uh, we would never have, you know, bought for ourselves. And we just told the family, so thank you so much. But I thought, wow, what a, what a shame that nobody else that it was technically intended for got to enjoy it. But we certainly... Uh, were blessed and benefited uh, sort of secondary uh, people in that regard. You know, as I come to this part of Scripture in the book of Acts, we understand that in the mind of God, He, he knows the end from the very beginning. He's not making it up as He goes along. We need to understand that about God. But as He depicts the plan of salvation and how he works out with us as individuals because of our finiteness, because of our inability to grasp eternal thinking, he more or less lays it out and unfurls events as we understand them. So sometimes it, it gets that feeling to us that, you know, okay, this didn't work out, so God came up with plan B. No, there's there's always only been plan A with many facets to it with God. And so when we read a story like we did today, and you find that, okay, here is a couple missionaries, they're going to the Jews first because that's what God wanted, but, and, and some of them did accept, but then there's this change in saying, okay, well, if you don't want the gospel, then I guess we'll go to the Gentiles. It comes across as if, all right, well, what do we do now? You know, who do we go to? But actually, when, when Paul uh, is speaking to the Jewish people in verse 47, and you may have a marginal note if you have a study Bible for Isaiah 49, 6, he's actually quoting the prophet who God had said, you know, I'm going to make you a light unto the Gentiles. And that was Isaiah himself personally. And and there was a way in which he was a light unto the Gentiles and the fact that the Israelites went into captivity and there was an opportunity to get the gospel into areas where it wouldn't have been. God was punishing the Israelites for their disobedient, disobedience and their idolatry by sending them into captivity. But then you think, wow, what an impact it had, the captivity had on someone like Nebuchadnezzar, for instance, who, while he's a very proud and arrogant leader he's brought humble and on a couple different occasions uh, 
face to face and even confesses that the God of the Israelites is the one true God. And so there is a little bit of that even going on in the Old Testament, but Paul and Barnabas adapted this and and took this rightly so for themselves and said, okay, well, if if there's a rejection by you folks, then we're going to turn, as God intends, to the Gentiles. And, of course, as we saw, the Gentiles, they were just extremely glad that the gospel was coming to them. And they received it better than someone telling them that they were getting a, a free trip or free accommodations in a very nice place. I mean, what? how do you put a value on eternal life, freedom from your sin. So we want to ask, through what circumstance do we see gospel gladness begin to grow in a person's life? Just a reminder of what's going on here in the uh, missionary journey. Actually, we can go back one slide. There we go. Just so you get your bearings here. This is where they still are at this point. They're in Antioch. Um, and if, if you look at that map, you can see in the lower right-hand corner, right above Syria, another Antioch. That's where they started off from. But here's where they are now. And then one click will show us where they're headed to by the end of the chapter into a town called Iconium. And uh, this is uh, after they're not well-received by the Jews. That's where they're headed to. And we'll be looking at that passage of Scripture tonight. But what are the circumstances that we see gospel gladness begin to grow? Three thoughts this morning. And the first one's sort of a, a review from two weeks ago when we were looking at the previous passage of Scripture and the verses there. And it's the idea that there is an aggravation of God's admirers. Now, let me explain what I mean by an admirer. One can be an admirer without being a lover. Just think about that thought for a minute, because I think that's very crucial for us to understand people that we meet that want to talk about God. If you ask someone, do you have a relationship with God, and then they start to spout things that sounds as if they do, we still need to be discerning to find out, do they really love God like the Bible says and commands us to do, Or do they just sort of admire God? Are they sort of intrigued with the concept of God? You see, love is our commanded response toward God. We're we're told, love God. You know, it doesn't just say, hey, I hope you love God. No, love God. It's an act of the will. It's something we decide to do. But how is loving different than admiring? Loving requires involvement and commitment. If you're talking about real biblical love, the love we're supposed to have to God and to one another, by the way, then there is an involvement, interaction. And there's a certain level of commitment that comes with that love. But we could say admiring is more or less or could be just a spectator sport. It's something that you can just do and walk away from it, no strings attached. And there's a lot of people that do a lot of admiring and yet call it loving. See, there were many religious admirers in the town of Antioch, Pisidia, going back to verse 14. 
says when they departed from Perga to Antioch and Pisidia, they came to a synagogue. Well, to have a synagogue, you had to have enough people that thought enough about the concept of God to, to construct some sort of meeting place where they could gather together on a reoccurring basis and talk about God. And, and some people might say, yeah, we love God, but you know, you can do all that. You can build a building for God. You can have regular discussions about God and still be just an admirer of God. Paul goes to this Jewish synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he delivers a very impassioned sermon, which really goes from verse 16 all the way to verse 41. And as a result, we read in verse 43, many followed, many responded to the message. But according to verse 45, there are also those that did what? They rejected. They turned away from, from the message. They said, that's not for me. Was the problem that he didn't speak the truth? No, he spoke the truth. And many of these people were those that regularly would show up at the synagogue. But they weren't ready to move from the spectator sport of God into an involvement commitment to God. They were not rejecting the concept of God entirely, just the involvement that the gospel message carries with it. And that's really essential for us to understand. So what about Paul's sermon seemed to aggravate these admirers, if we can call them that? What stirred them up? What, what caused them to get so agitated that they really kick him out of town in the end of the chapter? Back in 17 through 22, we, we see how he taught uh, progress. He laid the foundation of the Scripture that they would accept. In other words, going back and telling the, the story, if you would. And at that point, they had no problem with what he had to say about their forefathers and their history. And, you know, and that's a good approach, by the way, to take. Start with where people have common ground with what you're thinking and what you're talking about and move from there and logically work them through. Now, you're not trying to manipulate them into salvation. Nobody can do that. But if you help them to understand, it's kind of like turning the light on slowly for them. And then in verse 23, we see that he preached the person. He gets right to the, the meat of the issue, Jesus you know, how they were all looking for the anointed one, the Christ, as he's called in the New Testament, the Messiah. All that is the same person. And to this very day, I remember when we went to Israel, there, there are people that are going to the wall, that they call the Wailing Wall, praying for the Messiah to come. And it's so sad because we know he has come. And we know he's coming again. But they totally missed the point. They missed it when he did come the first time, and they're still missing it. And yet the Bible is so clear. Let me just quickly lay out some things that is so evident. For instance, he was prophesied that he would be in the line of David in Isaiah 9, verse 7. And we're told in Matthew 1:11, Jesus of Nazareth was of the line of David. We're told that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, according to Micah 5, 2. And according to Matthew 2, verse 1, he was born in Bethlehem. It is prophesied in Daniel 9, 25, that he would be born 483 years after the decree to rebuild the walls. 
And in Luke 2, verses 1 and 2, we understand by the decree of the census that in fact it was 483 years. You can do the math. It doesn't specifically say it in that verse, but there's, there's ways to shut the timeline that it's very clear. It's, wow, this is him. In Isaiah 7, 14, the very prominent verse that he would be born of a virgin. Matthew 1, 18, Jesus was born of a virgin. That his birth would coincide with the massacre of infants in Jeremiah 31, verse 15. Guess what? Matthew 2, 16 talks about the infanticide that Herod brought about. There would be a flight into Egypt as they would escape, according to Hosea 11, verse 1. Matthew 2, 14, the family left for Egypt to escape the tyranny of Herod. There would be a triumphal entry in Zechariah 9, verse 9. And we read about that triumphal entry that was given to Jesus in John chapter 12. We're told that the Messiah would be sold for 30 pieces of silver, according to Zechariah 11, verse 12. And we read that that happened to Jesus in Matthew 26, verse 15. He was crucified with sinners, hands and feet pierced, given gall and vinegar, his side pierced, no bones broken, buried among the rich, bodily resurrection, his ascension. No one else meets all the criteria except for Jesus Christ of Nazareth. You say, wow, all that. How can anyone refute that? How can anyone look at that evidence and say, nope, I don't think it was him. And, and the only answer is to say, I don't want to believe that it was him. Why? Because I don't want to enter into that kind of commitment. I'm not looking for that kind of Messiah. The Jews weren't looking. Israel wasn't looking for that kind of Savior. They were looking for a civil deliverer. So Paul pointed out, it's Jesus. He's the person. Paul also preached the problem in verses 24 to 28. The people of Jesus' day were self-righteous, but yet they still needed to repent. There was that external, superficial, going through the motions kind of spirituality. Uh, we talked about yesterday in our, our men's group, but it's, it's the heart is the issue. It's the heart that God looks at, the hidden man of the heart. Instead, they rejected Jesus and wrongly condemned him to death to get rid of him. You can't get rid of Jesus, by the way. You might alienate yourself. You might muffle his, your ability to interact with him only to your own detriment. But the real problem isn't him. It isn't the missionaries that are showing up. It isn't the preachers. It's not the gospel tracts. It's not these Baptist churches and these gospel outreaches that are done. It's the problem of a sinful heart that rejects the truth. And then fourthly, he preached the proof in verses 29 to 31. He just laid right out for them how it was inarguable. You can reject, but you can't be rid of him. He rose, he was seen irrefutably. I mean, no one would reject the, the amount of testimony that was out there about the risen Lord. And yet people did. So what happens when you bring this sore subject up again? You can see why people would get aggravated. The people were pinned down. They were squirming. 
Maybe some of you remember before you got saved sitting under the gospel message and coming under conviction, and you were squirming, and you were uncomfortable. Why? Because you knew you were wrong, but you weren't ready to get right. I remember that sense. And honestly, even as believers, as sons and daughters of God, when we get out of fellowship with Him, we still get that way sometimes, don't we? The truth of the Word of God hits us square between the eyes, and we realize it's right, but I don't like what I'm hearing. It means I need to change, and I don't necessarily want to. The preaching was powerful, and therefore it had to be refuted if they wanted to continue on, if these people wanted to continue on, in the delusion that they were right. This is all done by people who are simply happy to be God admirers. They're aggravated, but they're God admirers. What's another circumstance that we see the growth of gospel gladness happening in? Right now it looks pretty bleak, I understand, if we just stopped right there. But that's not the end of the story. Because we see, secondly, the attention of God's ambassadors. Even though they're not appreciated, the primary focus of the missionaries was to the chosen seed of Abraham. Now, God knew before Paul and Barnabas ever showed up that this is exactly what was going to happen. But God wanted them to do it anyway. There was an active persuasion is the best way I, I can think of to describe what's going on here in verse 43. Now, when the congregation was broken up, many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them. See that word? I think that's a key word there. Because there's not going to be active persuasion going on now, based on verse 46, Paul says, we're going to turn. This is not to say that people in this village, none of them can ever come to know Christ as their Savior after they walk out of the town. doesn't mean that God is giving up on them. But there is a sense in, in which that if people resist the grace of God and harden themselves, then God softens and He begins to delimit the amount of work that He may send their way. On the other hand, if we're open to the truth and receive the truth, God blesses us with more truth. What is particularly sad about the loss of attention that this community is going to have was that everything that was being said was for their benefit. Right? Even though they didn't like it, we step back and... As we read this story and realize, you know, it's kind of like when you're watching a show and you're yelling at the TV as if the characters could hear you or the, the players on the field could hear you, you know. No, 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 go left, go left, you know. And even if someone else was, you know, trying to communicate someone, you know, it's like they're not getting it. And then you see that stubbornness. Not that any of us are ever stubborn. No. Someone tries to tell us something, and later we get along with the Lord, and we realize, you know what, <laughs> I should have listened. My pride kicked in, my arrogance kicked in, I didn't want to hear it. What they were trying to say was for my benefit. I remember talking to a dad one time, a friend of mine has twin girls, and he was telling me his, uh, the time he was teaching, now the girls are grown and married now, but that he was trying to teach him how to ride a bike. And so, you know, he had them both out there, and I don't know, he didn't say how he decided which one to start with. 
you know, and he took her out there and showed her the bike and stuff, and, you know, I'm going to run beside you here, you know, the whole dad thing, you know, where we're all winded and huffing and puffing and stuff, and, you know, up until that moment that you sort of let go, and off they ride, you know, and the soft music plays, and it goes into slow motion, and everybody cries, right? But he got out there with all this in mind. He said, you know, it was a disaster. I said, you know, what happened? He said, she didn't want to try. She was, she was scared and defiant. He said, and I tried to coax everything I knew how to do, and there was just no convincing this little girl to get on that bike and trust me. He said, and finally I said, fine. But, you know, it, it didn't take five seconds for her sister to say, Daddy, I'll do it. So she jumped over there. She'd watched everything that was happening with the sister, see. She got on there, and he tried to explain, I know, I know. You know, she'd already heard the lecture. You know, she didn't need the motivational speech. She gets on, okay, Daddy, you know, go, let's go, you know. He starts puffing and panting, running alongside of her. Okay, Dad, let go, you know, probably after a few tries. And there she goes. And he's smiling, and he looks back at daughter number one, if we could put her that way. She's sitting there cross-legged on the ground. Is she smiling? No. She's got one of those big clouds over her, you know, if it was a cartoon drawing, right? And she's got a big frown on her face. Hey, he says, I tried to give you the chance first. Well, it didn't take long for just the sheer competition to get that first girl back on the bike, and she learned too. But, you know, you see that story, and we kind of smile and see the human nature and the, in, you know, the immaturity of it all and everything. But isn't that a lot of what's going on here? here here's group number one. God says, I've got the gospel for you. I've got salvation from your sins. I've got eternal life. I've got oneness with me and mine. No thanks. We're fine. I'm not interested. Okay. I will turn and persuade another group of people. And so there is this turning to the gospel. And these Gentiles are so enthused. And rightly so. Because this is a great treasure. This is a great find. This is a great transformation. Now... It's true that faith comes by hearing the Word of God. But doesn't God utilize human agents in the process as well? Romans 10, 14. How shall they hear, talking about the gospel, without a preacher? It doesn't mean an ordained minister such as myself. It means someone that's willing to go and proclaim the gospel. Tell them how to be saved. There is typically some verbalized method. 2 Corinthians 5.20 describes this as ambassadors of Christ, beseeching people to be reconciled to God. That's our role. Remember Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch? He goes alongside. He asks him, hey, you're reading the Bible. Do you understand what you're reading? He's in Isaiah. The response of the eunuch, how can I except some man should guide me? We understand God has in his plans put the human agent such as us such as me, such as you, to help guide people as ambassadors. Now, I know, we have tracks, we have commentaries, we have all kinds of online sources that anybody can avail themselves of. Audio sermons. 
A person can pick that up on a whim and pursue it. But how often do they, really? How often do we hear stories like that? Most of the time, what happens? It's one of us, a Christian, who shares what a wonderful change in our life has been wrought since Jesus came into our heart. It's what we see in the New Testament. How many times does the sheep return to the fold without the shepherd pursuing him? Sheep by nature just don't do that. There needs to be some coming after that takes place. But thirdly, I want you to see the acceptance of God's arrangement. You see, when when the word got out to the Gentiles in verse 48, that they, had, that they were now going to have the opportunity. The message isn't just what's happening in the synagogue. It's not just for the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No, this is being offered to us. They had a much different response than the first group of people had. And what was their response? And this is what I want us to see today. First of all, there was an enthusiasm for God's gift. Notice in verse 48, it says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they were what? They were glad. There was a joy. There was an unexpected happiness. And they were quick to respond because they recognized what a treasure this was. They recognized how how much they needed this. They recognized how inadequate they were in themselves. Isn't it a blessing when you see someone come to know Christ as their Savior and how excited they get at realizing what God has just done for them? And and then they just begin to talk to you about it, talk to other people about it. They go to work, they go to their neighbors, and there's just this this very matter-of-fact openness that happens in a new Christian's life. Enthusiasm. In fact, they're so enthused about what they've heard. They said, you know, Paul, they weren't saying, when are you going to be done speaking? They said, will you come back next Sabbath day and, and, and say it all over again? Now, I don't know if they meant verbatim repeat because it's doubtful that Paul was like reading off a transcript or anything. But they wanted to hear the gospel message again. Sing them over again to me, wonderful words of life. The hymn writer got it right. That ought to be what is true of the genuine lover of God. There ought to be a sense of there's nothing that I I relish more than the Scripture because it's, it's my Heavenly Father talking to me. Now, understood, a lot of these people aren't yet redeemed. They're not transformed. They're not regenerated. But they're in the process of, of going that way. God's drawing them, and so there's an appetite that God's grace is working on them to bring them to that place. 2 Thessalonians 3.1 says, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course. It is an amazing thing when you see God spiritually and invisibly working in situations so that the gospel message penetrates hearts and lives and has its work accomplished in people's lives by seeing them transformed. It's exciting. And so it's not just about enthusiasm for God's gift. It's about an exalting of God's work. 
Because the end of 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 goes on to say, after it says that the word of God may have free course and be glorified. It's not just salvation isn't just so that we have a relationship with God and have a future home in heaven. It's about really fundamentally so that God, our creator, can be glorified by what's happening in our lives. Why were we made in the first place? That he might receive glory. But we became sinners, so we can't glorify God. I mean, we can try to sing songs and hymns and do good deeds, but if we are still unrighteous, unjustified, unredeemed by Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter how well we do it, it's not going to really glorify God. But once we've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, once we've been justified freely by His grace, then... We become a wonderful opportunity for God's glory to be manifested to others, but it also is a sweet savor back to God in heaven, isn't it? And that's exactly what was going on here in verse 48. Because it says that they were glad and they glorified. They were bringing glory to God. There was a great celebration going on. Not only were there an enthusiasm for God's gift and the exalting of God's work, but then there was an exercising of God's faith because they were glad, they glorified, and thirdly, they believed. They put their dependence in Christ is what is meant by that. We're not given all that extra verbiage, but we, we understand by the context of everything that Paul has preached, he's been very focused at what they needed to believe in. And that's why we went back and started and did sort of a, a synopsis of the chapter and his message from last time. Because it's not just a matter of like some people say, well, as long as you have faith. No, it's not just enough to have faith. It's about what you have faith in, whom you have faith on. Yeah, but believing and having faith is so difficult. Absolutely. In fact, you can't have the right kind of faith that you need to have by yourself. Romans 4.16, the first part of that uh, verse, or the second part of that verse, rather, says, Therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace. Talking about our salvation. And, and Paul makes it, as you read through the book of Romans, you realize how important prepositions are, those little tiny words that, you know, some of us had to memorize, you know, a list of 60 of them. But, you know, you th it's easy to gloss over them. But he's being very particular. It is of faith my salvation comes because i am believing i'm having faith and then he goes on to say that it might be by grace because if i were to come to god to be saved in my own merits then i would be competing with the grace of god the grace of god means he's taking care of it he's designed it he's carried it out he's completing it in me what do I do? Well, I don't do anything other than act on the faith. Where do I get that faith? Well, according to Ephesians 2.8, it's a gift of God. He even gives me the gift of faith that I can respond to. So then I look back and say, wow, I couldn't even contribute to faith. I guess it is all of God's grace. Amen. So the faith that we're exercising isn't really our faith. It's whose faith? It's God's faith that's given to us. 
give you another example. Remember the story that Jesus tells in Matthew 22 about the man that throws a big wedding feast. And, you know, this is a great time of celebration. You want everybody to come. And he had a guest list, but nobody showed up on the guest list. I mean, free dinner and all this stuff. He'd spent a lot of money. So he tells his servants, I'll tell you what, we're still going to have a party. We're still going to have a shindig here. So just go out into the highways and hedges. Basically, the guest list becomes anybody you can find. Just make an open invitation. Well, of course, these people weren't going to be prepared. They didn't have it on their agenda that day when they checked their smartphones and say, what am I doing today, you know? Oh, you've got a wedding. No, they're out shopping. They're out, you know, trimming their lawn. They're doing different things. I'm putting it in today's context. Someone comes by and says, hey, there's a wedding celebration for so-and-so. Now, likely they knew who this person was. They never dreamed in a million years they'd get invited to a shindig like this. So it's like, yes, because it was an honor. And so they went. But you know what? The, the idea that I don't have a thing to wear isn't a problem. Because if, and we won't turn there, but in Matthew 22, it actually says the wedding was furnished with guests. It means more than just populated. It means that the Lord of the feast not only took care of making sure that they got there, but he made sure that they were acceptable in their appearance. There were wedding garments. Say, I don't have a wedding garment. No problem. We'll provide you with the wedding garments. That was very traditional in that day. But you know what wasn't acceptable? To come in and refuse the garment and expect to be admitted to the celebration anyway. And the Lord walked around and he found someone that did, had done just exactly that and said, kick him out. Now, what's it a parable about? It's a parable about how we enter the kingdom of heaven. Truth of the matter is, none of us provide our own white garment of righteousness. Jesus Christ gives it to us. He furnishes the guest of heaven. Amen? And if anyone thinks that they can bypass somehow the righteous robes of Jesus Christ and still enter into the wedding feast of the Lamb is sadly mistaken. And so just like it's God's robe of righteousness, it's God's faith that allows us to enter into that. The garment is Christ's imputed righteousness to us. And then fourthly, I want you to see that they were engulfed by God's Spirit. Verse 52. What I love about this is that the timing of this shows that, that the missionaries, that you would think that they would be dependent on, and you'd wonder... Are they going to last after they're out of town? But they even leave not on good terms with the community. I mean, he's shaking. This was a symbol of rejection. You know, you reject the gospel, we're going to reject you. And shaking off the dust of their feet. And they go to the next town. And then we have verse 52. And I believe that this was true before, but I think it's important that it says that the disciples, still talking about the disciples back in Antioch, Pisidia, they are filled with joy and with the Holy Ghost. And those things go hand in hand. By the way, you can't truly be filled with joy as a Christian if you aren't controlled by the Holy Spirit. You can manufacture something that looks like it, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the fruit of the Spirit, joy. It means you are consumed with joy and controlled by God's Spirit. It means you're saying yes to God 
in every single aspect of daily life event because you know God has your best interest at heart, even if he takes you into hardships. And that's why you can have joy. I'm reminded of the Syrophoenician woman who, who wanted to have a devil cast out of her daughter. She's not Jewish. She's coming to a rabbi. People are thinking, get away, woman. And even Jesus says something that kind of makes all of us a little scratch our heads, right? He looks at her when she makes this request and says, it's not fitting to take the children's bread and cast it under the dogs. Now, dogs was a euphemism, a figure of speech for Gentiles also. She got what he was saying. Now, she, she didn't just turn and walk away feeling insulted. I believe it was the Lord's challenge so that her faith could really be able to come out and shine. And her response was amazing. Yea, Lord, yet the dogs under the table eat of the children's crumbs. Wow, I wish I could think on the spot like that, don't you? Wow, what a statement to make. Takes the words of the same analogy, you know. I just want crumbs. I don't need to eat the table. Kind of like the, the commander in chief that said, Lord, you know, you don't even need to come. Just speak the word. My, my servant will be healed. And Jesus said of that man, what faith? Not in all Israel have I found such faith. I think of what David, a man after God's own heart, said when he became so enraptured with what it meant to be a true follower of God and how glad he was to be a believer and to have that relationship. He said in Psalm 8410, you know, I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God. What's he saying? Give me the lowliest position, but as long as I can be attached to the worship of the one true God, I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Why? Because David had tasted and seen that the Lord is good. He understood that. And when he fell away from God, he repented and he wanted to get back into fellowship because he knew there was no substitute the world could offer in its tents of wickedness that could compare to the true fulfillment and real joy that comes from having a union with the one true God. So what's the takeaway for us? I think this understanding as we pick up on what's going on with these Gentile people in the city of Antioch and their unbelievable thoughts, wow, we're getting this, and how rejoicing we are. There is a sense in which sometimes as Christians, as we walk with the Lord and we mature in the Lord, it's easy for us to be guilty of becoming more lukewarm, losing our first love, becoming complacent, taking for granted certain things. And I think a passage of Scripture like this is intended for us as believers that know Christ to come back and say, yeah, that's the way I found Christ, and really it's how Christ found me. And I realize that, you know, though I've been enjoying a relationship with Him for maybe many, many years, and some of us many, many decades, I'm still, I don't want to lose sight of how undeserving I am of the grace of God. And how thankful I am that he turned from the Jews and, and gave this message to the Gentiles. He didn't have to do that in his infinite plan. He could have just consigned every Gentile to the lake of fire and given them no opportunity because he's God. 
And he would be just to do it because we're guilty sinners. And yet he did in his mercy. Why? (laughs) I don't know completely. But I just want to understand that I want to enjoy and thrive in that. And as we read our Bibles, maybe certain verses will now resonate with us stronger with that concept in the back of our minds. I was reading in my devotions Ephesians chapter 2, and I came to verse 13, and it struck me in the same way as I was freshly working on this message. It says, But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. You know, there's one thing about a good relationship is that there's proximity, intimacy, right? Nobody says, you know, I have a wonderful relationship with my spouse as long as we're far away apart from one another as we possibly can be. You know, you'd say, hmm, I got a good marriage counselor you need to talk to. You know, I think sometimes God gives us animals to teach us lessons too. If you have a pet, especially a dog, where's that dog want to be when you come into the house and sit down? Boom, right next to you, right? And you're kind of glad, you know. Even if you push him away, you know, he'll still come back the next day. And there's a sense in which we're away from people that we love. We can't wait to get back with them, right? Well, you know what? As we're born into this world, we're alienated from our God. We start off that way. And God is doing all the work, folks. God has done all the work to bring us close to Him. Do you and I deserve that? We do not. But how can we reject a God that loves us that much? How can we not want to be glad and rejoice and serve and testify, come to church and just sing these hymns and and personalize them to ourselves? And offer them up as an incense of praise to God. Folks, there's a, there's a gladness in the gospel. We've gained so much. Let's not take it for granted. Amen? Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for Christ Jesus, who is the creator, the conveyor of the gospel. Thank you for the intimacy that we can enjoy with Jesus because of Jesus' sacrifice. Yes, we were alienated. We were far off. But you've brought us close to you because of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray if there's any soul here today that still is estranged from you, they've not come to you. They're satisfied to be an admirer of of deity, to talk about God in a, a very temporal sense superficial sense father move in hearts help them to realize that that is just a counterfeit relationship you have so much more you want to redeem them you want to bring them close to you lord i pray that you would work as only you can help them to respond in faith that you have gifted them with that it might be of your grace lord for believers Help us if we've grown cold and indifferent. Lord, may we be revitalized in our admiration and our love and really our amazement at what you have done for us.
May we stand in awe as we read these passages of Scripture and realize this is something I can personally claim now because of what Jesus did for me. May we not lose that spirit. Father, we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's take our hymn books together and turn to number 448. I'm, I'm sorry, thank you. 125. My eyes do this thing where I look at the wrong spot here. need to highlight these things. Jesus paid it all. Amen? Do we need to say more? Your heart ought to think about these words. You know, I know it's a familiar song. Can I challenge you as you sing this? Sing it thoughtfully. Sing it personally. And sing it to the Lord. If you know Christ, sing it with gladness in your heart. I mean, be glad because of the gospel. Be filled with joy because you're controlled by the Spirit. If you're not, surrender whatever it is that's interfering, that you can enjoy all that God wants you to enjoy in His fellowship. Friend, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, oh, wow, what a tragedy it would be for you to walk out the doors of this church today without coming to Christ. You say, I don't know how to do that. We would love to help you with that. While we're singing, you can come down to where I'm standing and I'll discreetly partner you with one of our lovingly trained counselors here in the church. They'll take you into a place in the building and show you from God's Word how you can be saved today. How the gospel can change your life. But if God has spoken to you through His Word, I hope you'll respond. Let's stand together. As Brother Dale leads us, you come.